We've come to a, a hinge point, as it were, a pivot in the book. Chapters 1 through 3 are about doctrine and theological matters. And then 4, 5, and 6 are very practical. Uh, Paul is going to base everything that he's going to say now in 4 through 6 of the, okay, therefore, let's do these things based on things we've already learned. And so we're going to see a change in Paul's tone and begin to have very practical application. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand. Father, not just mentally, not just with our minds, but Father, in our hearts and our very souls, that you would grow us by your grace and strengthen our faith. We pray for anointing for the preacher and hearer alike. We ask these things in the precious and bold name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I've done some fairly strange things in my life. I'm not even talking about sin at this point. What I'm talking about is, uh, well, I took a year of Swahili in college. And you know, Swahili is something that comes in real handy here in uh, Bruton, Alabama. I use it a lot. But I took it for a reason. It was a rather odd thing to take, but I took it for a reason. After my 11th grade year in high school, I went on a medical missions trip to Kenya, Africa, and I got to assist in surgery. Isn't that a scary thought? I got to help remove somebody's toe and cauterize. Alabama, they taught uh, Swahili. So I said, all right, all right, so I'm going to take Swahili. Well, what happened? Honors Biology 2 for majors is what happened, and uh, it ate my lunch. And I, I dropped out halfway through that semester, one of the best days of my life. <laughs> but I kept through with Swahili. And you know, by the end of those two semesters, I, I was pretty decent at Swahili. I had zeal for it. Like I was learning it not just for language credit, but I was learning it for a purpose. And so I'd gotten fairly decent, as decent as you can after two semesters of it. But do you know, I don't remember a lot of it. Seeing as I get to use it all the time, I can say hello, habari. I can say goodbye, kwahari. I can say praise the Lord, buona safiwe. And I can say my name is Big Cat. Gina Laka ni Paka Mkubwa. And that's it. Okay. Why is that? Why can't I continue to speak Swahili the way that I did in college? Well, it's because I haven't maintained it. Right? I haven't pursued Swahili since my first semester at the university. I had it, but now I don't. Maintenance is something that is necessary in so many areas of our lives. 
Maintaining your engine is a great idea if you want it to keep going. Continuing to invest in your children day in and day out is crucial to their well-being and the health of your relationship to them when they get older. Um, Even lawnmowers need to be oiled and fueled and cared for if you're going to be able to cut your grass. But there is another kind of maintaining that our passage talks about today, and it's found in verse 3. Paul prays and encourages us and exhorts us that we might be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As Christians, we are saved together, redeemed together, bound together in Christ Jesus. We have unity one with the other. But in another sense, Paul is no dummy, right? We have it, but the church is also a place where messy sinners like you and me come together. And anytime there are sinners together, there's always the threat that we will not enjoy the unity that is ours in Christ. And so he tells us that we have this thing. There is one seven ones we'll see in this passage, four through six. These things belong to us. We are united together in Christ. But he also says you've got to pursue it eagerly. Zealously, you have to pursue that um, unity. The context of Paul's letter here is a church that's made up of two very different people groups, as we've been talking about for several weeks. Christians from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. Uh, These two groups, before they were converted, were diametrically opposed one to the other. The Jews could pull the God card, and the, the Gentiles just thought the Jews were just crazy. They didn't have anything to do with each other. And then all of a sudden they were sitting in the pews together. And when the Jewish Gentile or the Jewish uh, believers looked at the Gentile believers and, and vice versa, they didn't see Jews and Gentiles, they saw believers. But can't you imagine that there would continue to still be differences between the two of them? They had unity in Christ Jesus, but, but it was something that they would have to work for. And so in verses 4 through 6, Paul speaks of the reality that they enjoyed and that we enjoy within our church and congregation, and that is unity together. And so in these verses, we see seven ones, the word one, O-N-E, where we see that we have together shared things. The first is that there is now one body of believers, one body of believers, have you ever gone to the doctor and he said, Look, you got one body, you got to take care of it? Um, perhaps you don't like hearing that. Uh, Paul here refers to the universal church or the Christian church, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, that there is one body or one group, one people that is God's church. We share a bond together with all Christians who have ever lived, wherever they lived. We are believers together in the one body of Christ. There's not one body over here for these Christians and one body for Christians over there, for the rich or the poor or the white or the black or whatever it is. There's there's one body of Christ no matter where we worship. And this is because there is only one Holy Spirit who works and dwells within the hearts of God's people. There is one who lives inside of me and one who lives inside of you and through and inside every believer, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the whatever church that names the name of Jesus. There is one spirit. 
while I was studying Swahili and doing very poorly in honors biology too for majors, I was also in a fraternity. I was, at Alpha, I was in Alpha Tau Omega. We all know that ATO is the best fraternity. And, uh, and it was one of those things that when you see ATOs, there's that instant connection. You like them until they give you a reason not to like them. And that's an external thing, right? There's an external thing. We were, uh, we, what's our bond? Well, our bond would be secret words and handshakes and parties, and that's about it. But how much greater is the bond that we have with believers in Christ? Not an external thing. Not in the kind of car we drive or the kind of clothes we wear or even the color of our skin. But the one who dwells inside of us the one spirit who is at work in our lives in the church corporately and inside us individually, we share together a deep bond together because there's one Holy Spirit. There's also only one hope. You know, there's only one real hope in this world, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how people go through life without the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Do you? As we think about our congregation, we have a lot of illness right now. There's a lot of cancer in our congregation. How in the world do we go through this individually or as God's people without the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the hope here is not a wishy-washy kind of hope, like I hope things are going to work out. The hope here is a check is in the mail kind of hope, a, a sure and certain assurance that Christ's purposes are true and His promises will come to pass, especially in regards to our salvation and His love and care for us and His plan for eternity. There's one source of real hope together, uh, one, one real source of hope in this life, and we have it together. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, there's one Lord We see here the word Lord, and it refers to a master or someone who has authority over us. You know, when more than one person is under the authority of a master or someone in authority, there is that shared relationship because you're serving the same person. We as believers are united together because we serve the same one Lord Jesus Christ and Savior of men And because we have been saved together by the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, people who go through traumatic experiences together, uh, they share a bond that is inexplicable, isn't it? You think about uh, folks in the military who have been through very, very bad situations. And, And the bond that they share after coming through those situations is something that no one else can really understand If you haven't been there, you just don't know. Well, don't you know that we have been saved together from something even more traumatic than the battlefield? And that is the fires of hell. We have been saved together from what we corporately and individually deserve. And that was God's wrath and judgment forever. Shouldn't that give us a great bond together? That we've been saved from hell and from the wrath of God by the one Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one way to be united with Christ, and that is through faith. There's one way to be saved, and it's not that this person over here has done a better job of being a good person, therefore God loves them more. There's only one way to salvation, and that is through faith and repentance. Here put as one faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to be saved. And there's one baptism. 
I meant to actually pull it out. Uh, the Paul. Do you know what a Paul is? You know, historically, Christians didn't put flowers on their caskets. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't mean that. But historically, Christians at uh, funeral services had a, a, a heavy piece of cloth. And we have one at the church for use in funerals. Um, and it's called the pall. And it's a covering, and it usually has a cross on it. Now, the pall is meant to uh, jog our memories, to point to in symbolism to the one salvation we have in Christ, and specifically our baptism. The pall points to the baptism. There's one baptism for all believers in Christ Jesus. That when we become saved, we and our children are baptized, and it doesn't matter what station of life you're in. There, there's one baptismal font over here, just one. We don't pull out the gilded one for rich folks and pull out the dirt one for poor folks. We don't, we don't keep one in the back just for really important people because God has used a common element, water, to demonstrate the pouring out of Christ's blood and the purity that we receive, the purification we receive when we are saved. There's one baptism. No matter where you're saved, where you live, no matter how you do it, right? Baptism or immersion or, or sprinkling, it's just one baptism. And all of this is because there's one God and Father of all. Meaning that together we can call the God who made all things and created all things and governs all things Papa, Daddy, Father. Together we can call Him that. He is overall, meaning that He governs all things. Our Father governs all things. He is through all things, meaning He is working through His people to accomplish His purposes. This is our Father. And He is in all, which means He is in every one of us, dwelling with us by the Spirit. That's the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. It, it belongs to us. And so we back up to verse 1, to this hinge point in all of the book of Ephesians. And we read there, I therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. <laughs> One commentator put it this way. It's as if Paul is saying, hey, you're saved. You're a Christian. Now act like it. Perhaps your father told you that uh, your last name's important. You know, perhaps he told you your last name is unsullied and it's respected. Now you need to act like your last name. There's a bit of that here. Now we'll never fulfill that calling in and of ourselves. Our lives are messy and full of, of temptations and struggles and failures and successes. But God has called us, okay, you're a believer. Now let's act like it. All these things we've read in chapters 1 through 3, the unity we've just read, now act like whom Christ has declared you to be. As those who are saved, we're called to act like it. And Paul tells us and them to walk. This is to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Um, what does that mean? Well, a call, the call here is the call to salvation. That in salvation we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. It was achieved by Christ at, uh, at the cross. And then when we are saved, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts through what's called effectual calling 
to change us and to give us a new birth, be born again, regeneration. So suddenly we go from not wanting anything to do with Jesus to calling upon Him in faith and repentance. How does that happen? Well, it's the initiating work of God. We have been called to the salvation and it has been made true of us. And now we are called to live in a manner worthy of that salvation we have received. Not to earn it, not to pay it back, none of those things. This word worthy is a marketplace term. And it refers to when you measure things in the marketplace using a balance. And on one side you have something that you're buying and on the other side you have the weights to see how heavy it is. And when those two things are equal... This word is used. There is an equivalence between the two. And so Paul says, hey, this is true of you. You have been saved. You have been called to salvation. Now may there be an equivalence in your life that it would show forth. I have one of those gut check questions for you. What would happen if you told your friends that you went to church? Would they say, man, that's great. They need it. Or would they say, that's great. I can see that they are a great addition to that church. Would they be surprised to hear that you're involved in a local church? Would they be surprised to hear that you're a believer in Christ? What would our friends say about our actions? Is it equivalent to our calling as Christians? I don't know about you, but sometimes I act different around different people. You know, I'll act holier around folks that I know I need to act holier around. But then with my college buddies, it might look different, right? That's, that's, that's not what we're called to. We're called to live one life before men, no matter where we are, in a manner worthy of our calling as Christians. Well, we have this unity, and we're called to live out our Christian lives, to make the connection between Sunday morning and Monday morning, right? That perhaps is a, is a hard distance. And he tells us that we are to maintain this unity in verse 3, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We talked about the maintenance that we need in order to maintain this peace, but, but perhaps maintenance is a hard word for us in English, in our culture. If someone is maintaining, what does that sound like? It sounds like they're doing the very minimum. You know, How are they doing their sports? Well, they're just kind of maintaining. That's, that's not what's in view here. The NIV maybe uh, translates it better. It says, to keep the unity. The word translated here has a connotation of uh, one who actively guards and protects. You think about a bodyguard. What's a bodyguard, at least a good one, what's a good bodyguard going to do when he's around the person he's protecting? He's going to be eagerly, zealously, purposefully, guarding that person and scanning for threats. It's not a passive kind of role. And that's what's in view here for us as believers in Christ. We have this unity. We aren't to be passive in pursuing the unity that we enjoy together as God's people. We are to eagerly be proactive in seeking to build up the unity and union that we have one with each other and with Christ. How do we do this? Paul's going to use some words here that are really important to, uh, to maintaining a healthy church. And the first is humility. 
A humble person is one who does not have an overinflated view of himself or who puts the interests, and who puts the interests of others before his own. One who is willing to do the lowliest of tasks and isn't worried about being associated with people who will hurt his reputation and prestige. Perhaps the best definition of humility is found in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. We find there these words from Paul, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a tough one to count anyone more significant than I count myself. Especially if it's someone that I struggle with, right? But Paul is saying in the context of the church, we're to count others and their opinions and their desires and their needs more significant than our own. Putting the needs of others before our own and listening well in humility. Why? Because we have the example of Christ. It is only because of Christ's humility that any of us are saved. The fact that we would say that the God of the universe is a humble God just sounds almost like a paradox, right? That's hard for us to even imagine. And yet this is the source of our salvation. We see this later in just a few verses after this passage in Philippians. We have this great hymn about Christ in verses 6-8. through eight, Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Here it is. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is the one, the only one who deserves worship and honor and glory, the only one who can hold up his trophy like Mark was talking about and say, hey, look at my trophy, and it not be sin for him. The the reason we exist is for His glory. The only purpose that this universe exists is so that God might be glorified. And yet He set aside the glory and worship that was due His name and was born a man in a stable in in Bethlehem. And endured living under the, the law, going through the hardships of having a human nature, being crucified on the cross and... The Father's wrath poured out on Him for us. Talk about humiliation. Talk about humbling Himself. Why? Because He loves you. Because the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. Praise God, He was raised on the third day. Showing forth that, that His sacrifice worked. That all those who have faith and repentance in Christ can have their sins forgiven. This is all because of Christ's humility. Now here's the thing, if if we are His followers, if we are His disciples, and we live in a way that is not uh, evidenced by humility, several things happen. One, it does not bring glory to Christ. And two, it hurts our relationships one with another. The second is gentleness in verse 2. Now, gentleness does not equal weakness. That's a really important thing. Gentleness does not equal weakness. 
One can get fired up when the name of Christ is profaned or the poor are taken advantage of. Those are righteous things. And then at the same time, be a gentle person as he interacts with those who are hurting. Gentleness is one of those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that is crucial to pursuing unity within the church. The opposite of gentleness is harshness. Harshness. Which comes really not out of a place of love and humility, but comes out of a place of self-righteousness. Gentleness is especially important when we see each other and help each other in times of need and weakness and struggling. Paul's going to use the same word over in Galatians 6.1. We read, Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And that passage continues to talk about bearing each other's burdens, just in normally hard times, not even sin. You know, what happens when you confront someone with harshness instead of gentleness? Does that, does that help often? Man, it feels good, doesn't it, to be harsh? But that's just straight up sin. What happens when harshness is applied to someone who is barely hanging on emotionally and spiritually? You know, when we're harsh to somebody, there are always things going on in people's lives that we have no clue about. And when we feel justified to lay gentleness aside, it may hurt them in ways you just don't even know and may never know. But we do this in gentleness because of Christ's example. It's because of His gentleness that we are saved, right? That... He would not give us what we deserve, but in His gentleness, give us salvation. Doesn't He deal with us gently, even when He shows us our sin? It may not always feel gentle, but then you consider how it might it otherwise have gone. Jesus is going to quote Isaiah 42 in Matthew chapter 12 about Himself, about His gentleness. He says, A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering flick He will not quench. You know, every Christmas Eve service we have here, you know, we pull out those candles, and sometimes they've been used before, and sometimes they hadn't. And sometimes those wicks are just itty-bitty little things, and it is hard for the elders walking down the aisles not to extinguish the light. They have to walk slowly and cup it. They are gentle with it, lest it be extinguished. This is the picture that we have of how Christ deals with us. In a bruised reed, if you've been out in the swamp and you see a reed, it doesn't take much to break one. And if one is lying down or, or dealing with a cornstalk, a cornstalk that is laying down because of the wind, the worst thing you can do is try to prop it back up. I know, I killed several of those suckers this year like that. Because it's so fragile and it's very easy to break. Yet... Jesus is gentle with us that we not, might not be crushed because He was crushed for our transgressions, not us. Finally, we see that there are these two sets of words here, very similar and closely related, that we are to have patience and to bear with one another in love. We see this elsewhere in Scripture in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience. We are to be patient one with the other. These two things work together, this patience and bearing with each other in love, is to live in such a way that we do not quickly seek to defend ourselves when wronged, 
And we don't immediately go for blood when someone slights us. And when quirks and idiosyncrasies irritate us, we overlook them. The person who is defined by these two qualities is one who doesn't sweat the small stuff and whose love for his brother and sister in Christ is not diminished by their sins against him. That's a tough one, right? Their love for their brother or sister in Christ is not diminished by their, their sin against him. But you know, this is more than just tolerating people. I think I've done well if I tolerate people. I imagine you do too. That's not what this is talking about. Because it says we're to do this in love. Toleration, putting up with folks, that's not love. That's just keeping your mouth uh, shut because you know what's good for you. That's not the ideal here that's presented. It is in love, out of unconditional, self-sacrificing love for the other, that we bear with one another and we're patient with them. Why? Because this is what Christ has done for us. You know, when my children do the same thing over and over again, I, I struggle not getting angry. And then I think about how the Father must look at me, except He has patience with me. Because it's the same thing I do every time. It's not usually new sins I create. It's usually the same ones. And that's what we do to each other, Right? When we have conflict within our marriages, it's usually over the same sorts of things. Conflict in the church or family. It's usually over the same sort of things. We're to be patient with one another because this is what Christ has done for us. Don't you love Psalm 103.8? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Oh, if that would describe me. And if I would have so much patience, having been filled up by the Spirit, that I interact with you and my family and everyone in public with this humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another another in love as we seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, Christ came the first time to bear, talk about bearing, to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows, Isaiah 53, to be crushed for our iniquities. And in doing so, he achieved salvation for his people, the church. You know, now we live in a time of the now and the not yet. We have unity, we have to pursue it. We have salvation, we look for its final uh, end or purpose of it when Christ comes back and makes all things new. The church is messy. I'm messy, you're messy, we're all messy. And we live in this messy time. But my friends, it won't always be like that. The church in heaven... The church triumphant, it's called. When we get to heaven, it won't be like this. It will be perfect, and you won't be sinned against by my sin. When we get to heaven, we will finally and fully be like Christ. And these struggles to be patient and humble, these things will be over. When Christ returns, we read in Ephesians 5.27, He will present the church to Himself in splendor, like a bride, without spot or blemish or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the unity and the bond that we have together in the Spirit, in the bond of peace. That is love. Help us, Lord, as your people to experience that. Help us, oh Lord, um, to pursue it zealously, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of our great calling in Christ Jesus. 
We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.